When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, this is Far-Fetched Fables. Welcome to show number 141. I'm your host, Nicholas heaton Clark, and first, a quick reminder. There are only two more weeks left in our current submissions period, so send in your story soon if you haven't already. The details are on the Triple F website. Now, we have two gritty fantasy stories for you this week, both with a modern setting. We'll begin with The Bed of the Crimson King by Philip Wiltgren, originally published in issue number 9 of Grimdark magazine. Philip is a writer and tabletop game designer based in Sweden. He's held jobs ranging from coal loader to martial arts teacher, which are a lot more impressive on paper than in reality, and his stories have been published in venues ranging from nature to daily science fiction. When he isn't writing, he spends time with his wife and kids. For more writing and free stories, visit wiltgren.com. His story is read by Nicole Doolin, a voice actor and a writer of fiction, scripts and poetry. She has performed narrations for a number of popular and award-winning podcasts, such as the No Sleep podcast and our own Tales to Terrify and Starship Sofa. She also narrates classic literature in her own podcast, Audio Literature Odyssey. To learn more about Nicole, visit her website via the link in our show notes. And now, The Bed of the Crimson King by Philip Wiltgren. The king lies in his big bed under the crimson covers and dreams of freedom. The bed is not his, not the way the grasses of the savannah were, but he must sleep in it. It is the king's bed, and he is the crimson king, and he has no choice. He had no choice when he went into the military at thirteen. He had no choice when he shot his commander and formed his own band at nineteen. And he had no choice when he led his men against the soldiers of the witch-king at twenty-six. Now he's an old man lying in a dead man's bed, dreaming of life as a young boy, sleeping on the sandy ground. The witch sways up to the night guards, the strong electric light in the yard shining behind her. 
outlining her with its white halo blinding them. She's young and comely and laughs with all her teeth showing. Her teeth are very white in her dark face, and her hands are very dark, but her palms are pale. And when the soldiers look at her, she turns her eyes down coyly and twists the hem of her umber and yellow tight-fitting dashiki. She is the virgin whore, a dream made flesh. The guards search her and she lets them touch her more than necessary, but she slaps their hands away when they try to grope. The guards let it pass. She's much too fine for any of them, the mistress of an officer or administrator, giving a taste to the common soldiers for the day, when her beauty won't be enough to gain her admittance to the luxuries of the parlors. The guards take what they can get and let it pass. She hasn't got a witch's scars and it's death to intrude upon an officer's property. The witch walks away, swaying from foot to foot, her entire body an invitation, and thus so prohibitively expensive that there is no choice but to let her pass unmolested. This is why her mother didn't mark her. This is why her power is hidden inside, small, weak, uncut and unscarred, but still there. She is a witch's knife and a witch's curse all in one, a beautiful, dark, deadly child. The Crimson King tosses in his sleep, wishing for the clean, tangible fear of the lion's roar in the distance, for the roar of airplanes and the crack of guns. These things do not constitute his nightmares, but the waking moments of softness and darkness do. He grunts and twists, pulling the silk sheets higher around the sagging skin on his fat shoulders. The witch no longer sways but steps purposefully, a young maid on a midnight errand. This, too, is a form of magic. The confidence to walk uninvited through strange places, the motion that says, I belong. This her mother has taught her, beat into her early mornings and late evenings when the heat of the day faded and flies crawled over their uncovered pot of jollof rice. You look at the food, eh, belle, says her mother. You look at the food and you walk. Her mother has the witch scars. Her mother is what the Crimson King's soldiers hunt, but her mother draws rings of blood around their home to summon the small animals, the rats and rodents, and kills them, and buries the bones in the corners of their room. The soldiers do not see their home, for her mother has power. Her mother has power, and Ebele has none. She walks, and her mother beats her, and when the light has gone from the sky and their room is so dark she cannot see the rats scurrying away from her, Ebele eats her food, feeling it move and squirm, and she learns. The boy who would be king squats before the fire, shoving cassava into his mouth. It burns, but the boy doesn't care. It is good to eat. The days are long and the herd is thin, but the boy doesn't care. It is good to live, to walk the savanna and feel the smooth stones and sand shift below his feet. The boy's father whips him to make him a man, and the boy's mother hugs him to make him a good man. When the slavers come, they take the boy, and they take the mother, and they take the herd even though the cattle are few. The mother is old and the boy is thin. 
for the world is big and there is money to be made. Hebele's mother tells her of the days of the witch-king, when those steeped in blood ruled the land. The soldiers wore black scarves then, and those who followed the witch-king were feared. Now the soldiers wear red, and they hunt witches. They hunt like blind dogs, for they drag away Titilayo, who lives across the street. They cut her throat and shoot her husband, even though he gives them money and Titilayo hasn't got the witch's scars. The soldiers don't care. Everybody knows the witches are all dead. There are no witches, but there is still blood. There is always blood. Ebele walks, and her mother walks, and they cover their heads in the tradition of the desert tribes, for a witch's scars have become a mark of death. The witch's mother tells her of the desert tribes, and of the white men and their white witch who was killed on a cross, and rose from the dead three days later. But the white men forgot about the white witch, and began burning their witches. In the day, Ebele begs in the streets, but at night her mother tells her of snake and monkey and Papa Diop. She tells her how to call the spirits with blood and death, and how the Orishas can grant a wish for a single night. And when the witch doesn't listen, her mother beats her, but always with an open palm so the blows do not scar. The fields are green with grass, and the roads are brown with mud, and the boy who would be king marches. He has a gun in his hands, an enemy before him, and a belly full of liquor, and that is not enough to make him forget the men with guns walking behind him. He fears them more than he fears the enemy, so he marches and he shoots, and he forgets the herd and his mother's hugs. His name is Momo, and Ebele loves him. He is old and bent, and tells stories in the market. Ebele's mother tells of how clever Monkey used his tricks to bathe in the blood of his enemies, and how Snake twisted in upon herself to bite the hand that caught her. Momo tells how clever Monkey played tricks upon the gods themselves, and how Snake twisted herself into a knot and had to ask Warthog for aid. When Ebele's mother finds out about Momo, she slaps Ebele and calls her a stupid, evil child, but Ebele has learned not to cry and says nothing. The witch walks through deserted corridors of yellow-veined marble, her sandals slapping the cold stone. She walks with confidence, but it is not enough. Ahead of her stand two more guards, and these are not common gatekeepers. They stand relaxed, chatting in soft voices, but their eyes are sharp and their big black guns are poised. The night has done nothing to dull their senses. The witch turns down a side corridor and walks outward, circling around to another door, another pair of vigilant guards, another dead end. Somewhere lies an entrance to the king's chambers that is not guarded. She knows there must be one or she will be dead. Dead if she is found in the compound. Dead if she leaves it because there are guards in the compound. And outside it, there is her mother. Ebele is ill. Her stomach is distended, bloated like a weak dead cow's, and she cannot keep her food down. 
Her mother feeds her cold rice and water and tells her about how things were before, when they had a house of their own, with white walls and glass in the windows. Tells her about the rows of flame pines and the children climbing the broken yohimbe tree by the corner. Ebele listens and hopes that when she dies, she will see the yohimbe tree and play with her siblings. She does not die. The boy has a rifle and he is a slaver, and there is money to be made. The boy sits in a truck, and when his sergeant tells him to walk, he walks. And when his sergeant tells him to shoot, he shoots. When a boy doesn't shoot, the sergeant takes his machete and chops a boy's head off. The boys are all afraid of the sergeant. But the boy who would be king is afraid of the machete. One night, when the sergeant lies in his tent, his eyes bloodshot from Hashisha, the boy who would be king takes the machete and chops the sergeant's head off. Now the boy is sergeant, but the world is still big, and there is still money to be made. The king lifts his hand and fumbles for the coolness of the iced zobo by his bedside. It chills his stomach but does nothing to cool his mind. And yet, what choice does he have? Ebele grows. She is a tall, lanky young woman, not quite in her prime, and her mother watches her walk and watches her talk. Ebele doesn't beg in the market anymore. She walks and talks to strangers, and often they will buy her jollof with chicken suya in one of the roadside bukas. Ebele is not afraid of the strangers, not even when they are big and strong and hungry. Every morning her mother draws the spirals, curses and talismans on her skin, dark henna on black skin, and no man touches Ebele or strikes her when she slaps their hands away. Her mother has power, and she has blood, and Ebele continues to learn. He is no longer sergeant but captain. He is no longer boy but man. He has a slim mustache and short curly hair. He has a gun. He has a band. He has a life of power. His band enters the town. It is their town. It wasn't yesterday and will not be tomorrow, but today it is their town, and they do with it as they please. The town cries, but not too much, for people have cried so much that they save what tears they have left. The town is big, thinks the boy, or small, thinks the man, but either way it is his town, and he smiles at the thought. He wakes, and his town is burning. There are cries and machine gun fire, talk, talk, talking, and when he grabs his gun and runs into the night, he sees a wall of men, his men. They were his men when he went to sleep. They are not now. Their eyes are empty and white. Their skins are pale gray. They are dead and they walk. The man who would be king raises his rifle. He shoots and brass cartridges rain to the ground. The witch realizes that there are no unguarded doors, no empty passages. But these are not the only doors. There are the doors of the mind, the ones that see what they want to see and not what is before them. She hides in a small alcove, 
its shadows sheltering her like a piece of night come indoors. From a slash in the sole of her sandal, she removes a shred of a metal, a tiny sliver of an edge too small to be called a razor. It is covered in tiny swirls and dots. It is too small to be a weapon, but it is a key the witch needs, not a weapon. The witch plucks a stray twig of shea growing through the lattice window and places it behind the blade. She holds the contraption hard in the fingers of her right hand. She eyes it with fear, but there is more than fear in her. There is a craving and a pulsing, pulling, yearning. There is power in her, and she wants it, wants to feel it flow through her, burning her, burning her fears. The witch wants to feel safe. For a moment she considers running, and her heart twists at the thought. There is no safety in running, no shelter in lands far away. There is only one safety, the one found in power. The witch takes the too small, too fragile blade and plunges it into her unblemished left arm. The pain surprises her. She almost cries out, but her mother taught her well. The tears that could fall have long since fallen on the hot embers of an old witch's thirst for vengeance. The young witch is a weapon, her mother's weapon, her mother's hatred made form. Weapons do not cry. She cuts and the blood spills down her arm, the spell ready in her memory. She's called it many times before, but never like this. With blood and pain and power, she can feel it tingling and tearing as it claws its way through her, sucking up her blood and leaving an angry welt in place of the wound. She steps out and approaches the guards. The man is tired and dirty. His cracked tooth hurts. His burnt hands hurt, and the gash on his leg smells of rot. He wavers in the heat, shuffling, limping, supporting himself on the bent barrel of a broken rifle. He is glad to be alive. Around him zobos grow, their brown stems awash in crimson flowers. He stops and raises his hand, caresses a long stem stopping at the last flower. This he picks. For a long moment he lingers, looking at the flower in his hand. Captain, says one of his men behind him. There are twelve of them, the ones the witches didn't kill, the ones the dead didn't kill. He turns and looks at them. A fierce spirit burns in his chest, claws at his heart. I will not die, he says and puts the flower in his hair a spot of wind-blown blood amongst his matted curls. His men look at him with dead faces, but their eyes are brown and alive. He is their leader and the man who will be king, a crimson king and the end of all witches. The king puts down his glass. He feels unease beyond what his nightmares create. He slides his tongue along his teeth feeling the cap where his tooth was broken so long ago. The air is clammy and hot and moist. There is death in his castle. He feels below his pillow, an overstuffed monstrosity the size of a small calf, and pulls out a gun. The metal is cold and smells of oil and powder. 
It does not reassure him. The witch walks up to the guards and they shift their guns to trail her. She smiles and the guns shift past her to something that isn't there. The guard on the right, older, his hair sprinkled with gray, creases his brow. The witch sees his confusion, his spirit struggling against her bonds, but then she is upon him. She pulls his partner's hunting knife from its sheath and rams it up below the old guard's chin. For a moment, the old guard's eyes go round as the moon, and she sees herself mirrored in them, a black shadow dancing like a wind-blown flame. His partner dies unknowing, and their deaths are like fire and honey to the witch. There is power and weight in her step. The king hears a clatter from the servant's door and shifts his bulk toward it, keeping the gun poised. He is on familiar ground now. He's been here before, and the savannah opens its vistas before him. The lion, the soldier, the witch stalking him. They are killers, but he is a killer too, and a better killer than any of them. The door flies open and the gun barks, illuminating the chamber and the small shape in the doorway. Then it flies from the king's hand, torn by winds that don't ruffle the blood-red curtains. The witch feels the power. This is what it means to be a witch. This is what has been denied her throughout her life, her training. The blood and spirits flow through her. The king's gun is a child's toy that she tears from his hand with a casual gesture she didn't know she knew. She is the perfect weapon, a black mamba in the darkness, killing by instinct. Then the king begins to laugh. She is confused, unsure, but she raises her hands even so. Nothing comes. She can still feel the power, but it is locked away, buried deep down, smothered by the avalanche of darkness burying her mind. From behind the king's curtains, shapes emerge. They may have been human once, but their faces are masses of scar tissue, and each scar shines with a pale red light. Only their eyes are dark, and when the electric light goes on as the guards pour into the chamber, the witch can see why. They have no eyes, and no breasts, and no hands. Their mouths have been sewn shut. They are nothing but conduits, batteries, and the witch realizes why the guards haven't killed her yet. She stares at the king. Ebele stands naked before her mother. Her breasts are full, her hips curved, her eyes averted, her smile perfect. The sky is the color of blood. Outside the window, the sun sinks into the ocean. Ebele is worried. She has learned the ways of blood and bone, of men and desire. She looks at the dying sun and wishes she was a bird flying far, far away. Her mother lights the fire and heats a long needle. She smears Ebele's breast with ash, draws swirls and dots on her skin and henna. The needle glows red, then white. Ebele's mother rubs blood between Ebele's legs and buttocks. Ebele sweats. Her knees shake. Her mother takes a rat out of a wicker basket and dangles it by its tail. She snatches the needle out of the fire and stabs it into the rat's eye. The eye pops, the beast dies. 
The needle goes to Abele's eye. Its tip is black, but behind it the needle glows red. Abele thinks she will die, but before she can close her eyes, her mother yanks her head down, and there is a sharp digging pain high up at the back of her neck. Her mother screams Abele's name, and Abele cries out, feeling things move inside of her. Power, longing, hate. She falls into them and collapses on the floor. The room smells of burnt hair. There is a woman on the floor. She is a witch and she has no name, only hatred. The witch's mother pulls her to her feet. She hands the witch a pair of plated split-toe sandals, a wide black skirt, an umber and yellow dashiki. Go, says her mother. Go and do not come back. The witch is young, a child reminding him of himself, the boy on the savannah. But the king shakes off the feeling. He gestures to the guards who give him a new gun, one of the weak, modern plastic ones. He can feel the scars on the insides of his cheeks burn with the power they keep under control. The witch's curse that rests on the child before him, now that he's aware of the danger. You thought to kill me? He says in a deep, soothing voice. It is a voice that makes him sound good on the radio. The girl merely nods, her hands limp. Her eyes are big, round, and averted. She is not what he expected from an assassin come this far. Why? He says, and the girl looks up. No choice, she says, and she is the boy on the savannah, the youth in the army, the man on the witch king's doorstep. In that instant, the king's will falters. The witch can feel the shackles shatter and fall away from her mind. She strikes before they can be put back. The guard's knife flying through the air, propelled by her will, her fear. It buries itself in the king's mouth like a grotesque black tongue, and suddenly there's power everywhere. Power of death. Power channeled through the two walkers. Power for the witch's taking. She takes it. It burns her, but what can she do? She's a weapon, and she knows what she must do. She walks out of the Crimson King's chambers, his dead guards marching beside her, his beating heart in her cupped hands. She thinks about choices and cries what few tears she has left. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And on to our next story, which is Bridge of Teeth by Mark Finn from Volume 1 of the anthology series Adventure. Mark is an author, actor, essayist, pop culture critic, and movie critic. He is a nationally recognized authority on iconic Texas author Robert E. Howard, and his biography, Blood and Thunder, The Life and Art of Robert E. Howard, was nominated for a World Fantasy Award in 2007, and is currently available in an updated and expanded second edition. Mark's articles, essays, reviews, short stories and comics have been published by Playboy.com, Revolution SF, Dark Horse Comics, DC Vertigo Comics, Monkey Brain Books, the University of Texas Press, Greenwood Press, Scarecrow Press, Fact Publications, Tachyon Press, and many others. For the past three years, Finn has been named one of the top movie critics in Texas by the Texas Associated Press Managing Editors Awards. He lives in North Texas over an old movie theatre that he owns and operates along with his long-suffering wife, far too many books, and an affable pit bull named Sonia. He tweets, blogs, and podcasts via the links in our show notes. His tale is read by Roberto Suarez, By day, Roberto works as a community college student advocate and recruiter. By night, he geeks out on all things fantasy and science fiction, comic books and board games. He is the co-host and producer of A Pod of Casts, the Game of Thrones podcast, and Radio Westworld, a podcast dedicated to HBO's recent science fiction series. You can find Roberto on the web or on Twitter as at Puerto Gican. And now, Bridge of Teeth by Mark Finn. Casablanca, Nuevo León, Mexico, October 24th, 1994. The bartender turned around, a dented and worn Louisville slugger in his fist, and swung it with all of his strength at the spot on the bar where my hand had been an instant before. I backed up, throwing as much broken Spanish between us as possible. Señor, señor, por favor, no violencia. He wasn't having any. He hurled himself bodily against the bar, trying to come over it, as he swung at me again. Bruja! he shrieked. Trabajador del diablo! I started to say more, but my duffel bag tripped me up, and I hit the wood planks in a cloud of sawdust. The wind knocked out of me. I regained my breath and my sight just in time to get a spectacular view of the Louisville slugger as it rushed up to kiss my face. For an instant, I saw the duplicated etch of Ted Williams' scrawl, and then my vision went white and red 
and I had the weirdest ringing in my ears. I couldn't feel my nose, but I could feel blood on my lip and taste it in my mouth. That bat was coming down again. I barely rolled out from under it. The bartender continued yelling, his patrons calmly backing against the far walls of the ramshackle cantina. I had a spell, I think, that I wanted to cast on him, or maybe it was just an urge to hit him back, but I couldn't get my legs under me. My vision cleared to the point that I could see blood on my shirt, a lot of it. Nothing made sense. Why was there blood? My whole face felt numb. The breath was sticking in my nose, and each inhalation brought shards of pain. I didn't want to die in Mexico, but the bartender kept coming at me, scared out of his wits and swinging his bat in crazy arcs. Finally, I felt the floor under my feet. I lurched upward, grabbing onto tables and chairs, anything to steady myself. As I moved forward, toward the frame of light that marked the door, I flung my temporary crutches behind me, trying to keep as much junk between me and that swinging bat. The door to the cantina smacked open, and I fell into the blistering sunlight, staggering back in the direction of the road. Voices behind me told me I was being pursued, and I tried my level best to pick up the pace. Somehow or another, I must have gotten turned around because suddenly, a man appeared in front of me, dressed like a soldier. He grabbed me and jerked me sideways around the side of the building. I thought I saw a flash of light as he spun me around and slammed me against the adobe wall. There went my breath again. He helped me up, pinned in place, with a wiry arm, as the crowd passed by, shouting and waving. When the dust settled, and I got my breath back, my savior started whispering in rapid Spanish. Sorry, I murmured. No comprende. The man stopped speaking and we looked at each other. He wore a flak jacket and a dirt green t-shirt. Two crossed bandoliers with a leather satchel held his pants up. What the hell were you doing in there? Asking about brujas, eh? I wasn't asking about witches, I said. I was looking for Joaquim Tolomec. The man's eyes flashed, and I held a hand up to silence him. Don't you start on me either. That man's no witch. Not a witch? The man threw his head back and laughed heartily. <laughs> Who told you that, gringo? Man named Morlock, I replied. Another gringo? The man finally let go of me. For a small guy, he was incredibly strong. And who are you? Sam Bowen, I said. Thanks for saving me. The man turned away. Joaquin Tolomec, he said. And you can repay the favor by getting the hell out of here. It took me a few seconds to parse that sentence through the shooting pain in my face. Finally, when it all sank in, I followed him down the alley beside the cantina. He was heading into the jungle. He stopped when he heard me and drew the machete from the sheath on his back. Gringo, he said, his voice filled with sorrow. I just saved you. Don't make me kill you. Listen, Mr. Tolomec, I said. I came here to find out what you know about Solomon's disc. Tolomec cocked his head at me. Who the hell told you to ask me that? Morlock, I said. Tolomec nodded. He still in Bastrop? Yeah, I said. We got rid of the black hound that was roaming the property. You don't say, said Tolomec. He looked at the jungle and scratched the stubble on his neck. The machete hovered above the dirt, his fingers flexing on the handle. So you're not a reporter? No, I'm not. And you want to learn about Solomon's disc, he said. If you'll teach me. What do I get out of it, Tolomec said. That stopped me. I hadn't considered that. I had my own agenda to consider, tracking down my ancestor 
who brought a curse unto my family. I was the trigger of that curse, seventh son of a seventh son, just like my uncle Jacob. Walking back through his footsteps, I had no way of knowing who or what cursed him. Until I figured the magic out, I couldn't try to reverse the curse. So far, I'd learned just enough magic and sorcery to know that I didn't have much of an idea what I was doing. Tolomek watched me, thinking. What's in the bag? he asked. I dropped a duffel bag in the dirt. Most of the witchcraft and spells that I've picked up along the way? Tolomek licked his lips. Let me see it. Wait, I said. Are we talking about trading? You tell me what I want to know, I let you root through my bag? Tolomek smiled. Something like that. Morlock warned me in his gentle ways that Tolomek was an opportunist of the worst sort. I was getting an idea now of what he meant. All of the talking we were doing made my face throb and my headache wasn't getting any better. Would you let me go through your satchel there and take what I wanted? Tolomek coughed and spit. This bag is sacred, he said. Yeah, that's kind of how I feel about this. I picked up the duffel bag and reshouldered it. There's not much in here, but I earned all of it. Tolomek nodded slowly. Huh. Well, good luck, amigo, he said, turning back to the jungle. Wait, I said. Let me offer something instead. Tolomek stopped walking, but didn't turn around. I continued. Why don't you take me on as an apprentice? Let me work off the lessons in labor. Let me help you with your work. Tolomek regarded me over his shoulder, his fingers still flexing around the machete. You want to work, side by side with me. In exchange for your information, yes, I said. You know what kind of work I do? I shrugged. I know you're a shaman. You help people, cure the sick, tend to failing crops, that kind of thing. Tolomek turned around again, nodding slowly. I am the light against the darkness in this part of the world. But because I am in the dark, it covers me, and I am as feared as I am respected. He gestured to the peasants walking confusedly past us, unable to see due to his spell. These people all think I am lost to the darkness. So I conduct my business on the edge of the world where they cannot see me. You understand? I didn't, and I told him so. You walk with me. That means you're walking on the edge of the world. I can't guarantee your safety or your sanity. You want to come along, okay, but don't expect me to slow down for you. One slip, and you're gone. I won't save you. Understand me? Yes, I said, and before I could do anything else, he punched me in the face. The impact drove me to my knees, but my breathing instantly cleared, and the lancing pain became a dull ache. Tolomek helped me to my feet and said, Your nose was broken, so I fixed it. You know, a handshake would have been just fine, too. Tolomek laughed. <laughs> One day, Senor Bowen, you will thank the day you met me. From his satchel, he withdrew a bottle of aspirin and handed it to me. I crunched a couple and followed Tolomek and his machete into the jungle. For a week, Tolomek had me hacking through underbrush, harvesting plants, digging up grubs, and in general restocking medicinal supplies. A few of them I recognized, but most of them were new to me. Tolomek didn't teach me much, except to show me where to dig and how to crush or preserve them. Some of their properties I figured out myself, 
others remained mysterious and smelly. As jungles go, it was hot, dirty, humid, and rotten, but it was a far cry from the heart of darkness. I turned into a giant throbbing mosquito bite. Tolomek gave me an ointment that made the swelling go away. We ate local food, I got the trots. Tolomek made me some tea and cleared it right up. Useful stuff, but hardly magic. When Tlomek talked, it was at night, around the campfire. We'd finished a spit-roasted iguana or vegetable soup, and he'd sit for hours, drinking mescal and staring at the fire. Like in a trance, he would rattle off the most amazing things in a mishmash of English, Spanish, and a language I couldn't recognize. He talked about the underworld being a flower, and being able to access the darkness through a multitude of gateways. He told me about the three ingredients of a man's soul, and how they can be captured or thrown out of balance. He told me about the Siva Tateo, the stealer of children, and the Bruja Wars in the hills, but still no mention of how to fight these things. No mention of Solomon's disc, for not the first time in my life I questioned my decision to follow this lunatic. Every day we moved further and further into the interior. Casablanca was a small Mexican town, but by the end of the week we were coming upon communities that were little more than clusters of huts and clearings. Not even villages, but single families. I took pretty meticulous notes to try and backtrack out, but even then, I knew they'd be useless if I tried to get back to civilization on my own steam. Tolomek's reputation definitely preceded him. As we encountered these hidden enclaves of families, children poured out of the trees to greet him, shrieking with delight. He gave them chiclets, and called to the families who rushed forth with smiles on their faces. We'd stay for dinner, the children giggling at me and referring to me as Tolomek's white gardener, while Tolomek and the head of the household did some horse training. Usually, it involved swapping medicines that I helped dig up for tequila and cigars. Seven days from civilization, we found a group of huts, but no children to greet us. This is our destination, Bowen, he said. He called out softly, and a door opened, and a native woman emerged. She was thin, walking on unsteady legs, tottering forward. Tolomek rushed to support her. She tried to get him to come inside, but he declined. They spoke in low whispers for several minutes. Standing among the small, sagging structures, I got the impression of sickness or plague. Nothing was moving. Even the bugs were eerily quiet. Finally. Tolomek called me over and told me to take the woman inside and care for her. What are you going to do? I asked. Tolomek didn't answer. He drew his machete and vanished into the foliage like a ghost. I helped the woman back into her house, which smelled of wet earth and corn flour. She motioned to her bed, and I laid her down in it and covered her with a ratty blanket. She moaned and started whispering. El que no es muerto. Puede vivir por siempre. Over and over again. I got the gist of what she was saying and decided to wait outside for Tolomek to return. It was dusk when he finally emerged from the jungle carrying an armload of wood. He dropped it in the cold stone pit in the center of the clearing and began to build a fire. I moved to help him, but he waved me off. Stand and watch, Bowen he said as he stacked the wood in a deliberate, peculiar fashion. Tolomek added dried leaves from his satchel and sprinkled herbs over the wood. 
After he finished, he crossed himself and then blessed the pyre. He pulled a match from behind his ear, scratched it on his boot, and dropped the flame into the pit. A jet of blue-white flame sprang up, engulfing the pyre and sending us both backwards a step with its intense heat. Tolomek grunted with satisfaction, squatted down in front of the conflagration, and intently studied the smoke as it curled and eddied above the bright light. I stared, too, and tried to make my mind blank and receptive to visions, but I couldn't see anything in particular. Finally, he made eye contact with me. Sit down and listen, he said, all interest in the fire now gone. He took a cigar out and lit it by waving the end through the flames. I sat behind him and instantly broke out in a sweat from the heat. The smoke from the cigar surrounded Tolomek in nauseous fumes. Between the turt-like stench and the blast furnace heat, I felt ready to throw up. This land is cursed, Tolomek began. It overlaps with the underworld, and the tension between the two creates pockets and seams that burst forth. He passed me the cigar and bit me to smoke it. I tried, and Tolomek continued through my hacking coughing fit. This village is under attack from the Mictiani, who do not know where the darkness ends and the light begins. They have stolen her husband and children, pulling them out of the house in the night, and taking them back to Tlalocan, the underworld, the flower of darkness. Wait a minute, I said. This isn't a plague, right? Or some shamanistic metaphor? We're talking about real things? Tolomek ignored my questions. We will cross over through the door to the south and cut down the bridge of teeth before the dead overruns this land and turns the flower inside out, bringing the night into day and the day into night. That part I understood. Tolomek looked at me, his eyes shining in the blue light. Tonight you will sleep. We will find your Nagual. You will need its help to cross into the underworld. I dreamt that night, for the first time since crossing the border. I was in the jungle in a tall tree, looking down at the peasant children below. They were all looking up and pointing and laughing, but I didn't seem to be embarrassed. As they watched, I leapt out of the tree and became a bird. They whooped with delight, chasing underneath me, until I flew over a river. Here they stopped and became serious and somber. I landed. Why do you not follow me, I said. This river leads to the black flower, an older child replied. I turned around, looking up the path for some indicator that I had crossed over into the underworld, and when I looked back, the children were all on the other side with me. The child who spoke smiled, displaying a wide, inhuman maw of teeth, and the other children surged over me. I woke up in one of the peasant huts, the first light of dawn streaming through the insufficient slats on the wooden door. Tolomek was outside, singing in Spanish and smoking like a chimney. Bowen! he roared. Get up and make the damned coffee! Over a breakfast cooked by the peasant woman, I told Tolomek about my dream. He spat into the cooking fire. Shit, he said. I wanted you to see an animal. We got no time to find your spirit guide. We have to do this now, in the light. But I became a bird, isn't that something? Which bird? Tolomek asked. A parrot? A songbird? A falcon? I have no idea, I told him. 
Tolomek wolfed down the remnants of his corn gruel and chuckled. <laughs> ah, the Ringo sees the problem now. Different birds do different things. Whatever, I said, more than tired of his me shaman you gringo shtick. I'm assuming we're going to physically go get the children back, right? Not astral project or anything cerebral like that? Tolomek's eyes hardened. Something like that. He began packing his satchel. Get your gear. We're going now. We left the village with food and water packed by the peasant woman. Tolomek had previously hacked out a path for us to follow, so the going was fairly easy until we came to the cliff wall. Tolomek sheathed his machete and switched his satchel to his back. Come on, gringo. We have a little climbing to do. I can't, I said, looking up at the twisted volcanic rock that towered over us. I've never climbed before. Tolomek sighed, exasperated. Just follow me, damn it, and do what I do. He leapt up, vertically, grabbed a jagged outcropping of rock, and pulled himself up and over. Come on, he urged. We have to get up there before nightfall. What could I do? I jumped up, caught the ledge, felt the rock cut into my palms, and promptly pulled my shoulder muscles, getting up over the first ledge. See? Tolomek said, beaming down at me from the second ledge. Not so bad, is it? It was the worst two hours of my life. Every handhold featured glass-like edges. Every ledge hosted a spider or snake of some kind. Tolomek routinely collected each poisonous critter that menaced us, but a few got past his vigil and I nearly fell off one ledge, shaking a wolf spider off my hand. By the time we got to the top of the plateau, the sun was high above us and the trees offered no protection. Only a thin outcrop of rock threw a scant shadow that we crowded under, sweating and panting. We ate lunch and drank half our water until the sun moved past, taking the shade with it. Somewhat refreshed, I stood up and took a look around. The plateau was a large, flat, and barren chunk of rock that looked like it had been dropped out of the sky a million years ago. On the far side was an identical clump of rock, slightly higher, with a small trickle of a river dividing the cliffs. Into the facing cliff was cut a small, dark cave. Thirty feet of nothing separated the cliffs. There was no way to cross the river. Behind me and now close by, Tolomek said, There's our gate. Now we have to bring forth the bridge. How in the hell are we going to get over there? I asked. Tolomek smiled at me. We aren't going to do nothing, gringo. I'm going to dream myself across. You're going to stay here and keep the Mictiani from crawling down the mountain. What, by myself? Uh, don't be a sissy. I'll let you wear my gloves. This is ridiculous, I said for the fifth time. Tolomek punched me in the nose, not very hard, but it hurt like hell after my recent break. I threw a return jab that caught him right in the mouth and split both of his lips. He growled at me through a mist of blood, and then somehow we were rolling around on the ground, punching, kicking, gouging, biting, and trying to beat the shit out of each other. After a week of frustration, it felt great to open up on him, but fighting Tlomek was a lot like messing with a gorilla. He was unbelievably strong and threw fast, damaging punches that hurt like a son of a bitch. 
While he was tapping the side of my face with his fist, I managed to wedge my leg between us and kicked him off of me. My bowie knife fell out of my boot, and I made a grab for it, but Lomek came up with his machete and pressed it against my throat. Calm down, he said, his breathing ragged. He looked up at the moon and said, You don't have a choice, Bowen. If you don't stay here and protect my body, we'll both die. I can get in there and stop them. You have to buy us the time. You can't do what I do. Not yet. It's got to be me that goes in. I don't even know what the hell I'm supposed to be protecting you from, I screamed. I'm cold, hungry, tired, and you've just given me a pair of weird gloves and told me to fight them off by myself? This is horseshit, Joaquin. Tell me what I'm up against, or I'm climbing back down this mountain right now. The machete blade gleamed in the moonlight as he rolled it off my neck and onto my collarbone. If I tell you, you'll just go back down the mountain anyway. You won't believe it, even if I tell you. So why not keep an open mind? He lifted the machete and laid it beside him. But if you're going to go, quit crying like a baby and just go. There's other ways to do this. I don't need you. I'm trying to teach you something, you stupid shit. He hung his head, speaking into his chest. Hurry up and work this out, gringo. I need to sleep. Well, shit. I thought about Mexico and Texas and all of the other places I had walked through and the strange things I have seen. I hadn't heard from the remnants of my family in over a year. They could all be dead by now. I stared at the ground, trying to remember my mother's face. I couldn't see her. Okay, so how do these gloves work? The turquoise cross around my neck was a jagged and crudely carved thing, and it snagged on my shirt and dug into my skin. I tried not to think about it as I fixed my gaze on the darkened cave in the side of the cliff. The moon cast a pale blue haze over the plateau, but nothing could illuminate the gloom of the cave mouth. Behind me, in the shadowed lip of the rock, Tlomek moaned and thrashed in a deep sleep. He muttered some gibberish, and then said loudly, Warn the kid! I had no idea who Tlomek was talking to, but he needn't have bothered. The wind shifted and the temperature dropped about twenty degrees almost instantly. I pulled the cigar and lighter out of the pocket of the trench coat Tlomek gave me, turned away from the wind and lit up. I still couldn't smoke worth a damn, but I managed to keep the cigar going. I turned back to face the cave and nearly burned myself with the Zippo. A bridge had appeared, spanning the gorge between the cave entrance and the plateau. It appeared to be made out of water and bits of bone, anchored in place with beams of moonlight. Shimmering and translucent, the spectral egress gave off an iridescent glow that unfortunately lit up the inside of the cave like a spotlight. At first, the women were beautiful, dark hair flowing in all directions from the wind, pale skin, and almost angelic. But as they neared the bridge of teeth, their true shapes became apparent. They grouped together at the mouth of the cave, apparently curious about me. I could see them, skeletal and terrible, in their burial clothes, their jaws working in silent anticipation. Some of them held their ruined heads in their hands, carrying it before them like a lantern. Others were just a loose assemblage of parts, savage bags of skin held together by a clasped hand. Puffing madly on the cigar, I walked forward until I was a couple of feet from the edge of the bridge, careful not to touch it myself. I raised my hand to them and shouted over the howling wind, Soy el vigilante del puente, usted no caminará encima. The Mictiani ignored me and began walking single file over the bridge. I knew they would, 
Flomek told me they would. I hurriedly slipped on the battered and stained gloves, not in the least comforted by their weight. The bridge swayed as the Mictiani trundled across. I started the prayer Tlomek gave me, whispering it through the cigar smoke that was making me sick, held my gloved hands up so the monsters could see the symbols carved into the riveted steel plates. She reached out for me, stepping off of the bridge. Instantly she was beautiful again, full of life, a countess or rich woman of some sort. I checked my swing, and in that second's hesitation, her mouth widened horribly, and she screamed and lunged forward. I backpedaled, freaked out, and then panicked again when I realized I had left the bridge unguarded. I drew my bowie knife and stuck it into her chest and heard the blade clatter around before dropping to the ground. Now she came at me, biting and gnashing, and I remember what Lomek had said. I shut my gloved fist right into her mouth, feeling my arm jar and shake with the impact of her clattering jaws. But the steel plates on the gloves held. Zombie armor. Who would have thought? I pivoted, pulling the undead thing with me and pitched it into the path of the next Mictiani coming off of the bridge. When the pair went down together, I used the cigar to light their shrouds on fire. They screamed and tried to crawl past me, but I used my boot to keep them on the bridge until they stopped moving. The other Mictiani stopped moving to watch them burn as well. When the corpses were nothing more than smoldering ash, they resumed their determined march. If the Mictiani crossed over and touched the ground, they became solid flesh. On the bridge, they were still as ghosts. My gloved fists had little effect on them, but the symbols etched into the steel plates that covered the gloves made the monsters shriek with pain. I punched, kicked, and scuffled with the smoke-like wraiths until my arms were lead pipes and my legs were wooden. Every time one of them got by me, I had to chase them down across the plateau and dismember them or set them on fire. Each time I did that, more got through. It was an endless dance, this makeshift siege, and I fought and swung and tore and screamed until the smoke from the pyres was too thick to see through and the stench of burning flesh brought howls from the predators in the jungle. I didn't know how long I had been fighting. The moon still shone overhead, and the Mictiani continued to pour from the mouth of the cave. Suddenly, a black shape hurtled out of the mouth with something shiny trailing behind. At first, I thought it was a bat, but as it flew straight towards me, crossing over the bridge and finally diving into the moonlight, I could see it was a raven. It flew over my head, dropping the glittering object at my feet. It was a large gold medallion engraved with a multitude of circles and symbols. In the dim glow of the bridge, the metal glowed like it was from another world. Just then the raven landed on my shoulder and whispered in my ear, Put it on. Destroy the bridge. The raven took off, flapping madly in the face of the advancing Mictiani to give me time. I slipped the medallion clumsily over my neck with my mailed fingers and ran with energy I didn't possess over to Tlomek's sleeping form. I grabbed the machete out of his gear and ran back to the Bridge of the Teeth, now not so spectral in the moonlight. It was an old rope and wooden bridge when I swung the heavy blade down. The rope sighed as it separated for the machete, and I hurriedly swung it again at the other side of the bridge. The Mictiani howled as they fell along with the rotten plants and hemp into the dark of the gorge. Nothing else moved. I was alone on the plateau. The moon was bright, so bright, and I laid a throbbing arm over my eyes to shield them. I woke up to the blazing sunlight. Tlomek was standing over me, a sad look on his face. You got more luck than anyone I ever knew, Bowen, he said. 
but you used it up with that stupid stunt. Yeah, I'm fine. Thanks. How are you? I said. He ignored my sarcasm. You stupid gringo, he said. I warned you not to cross the bridge. Why didn't you listen to me? What the hell are you talking about? I said. He pointed at the medallion around my neck. How else did you get that out of the cave? You tell me, I said, rolling over and sitting up. You're the expert. I didn't cross the bridge. A raven flew out and dropped it off for me. Tlomek bent down. A raven? Yeah, I thought it was one of yours, I said. It told me to destroy the bridge. Tlomek's eyes widened. That was not my Nawal. I was playing chess with Tlaloc. Then whose was it, I asked. Maybe it was yours, he said, standing up and walking back towards our camp. I got to my feet, slowly because every single molecule in my body hurt, and followed him. Well, what's this medallion, then? Tlomek regarded me for a few seconds. That's Solomon's disc, Bowen. And that's all we have time for this week. If you'd like to share your thoughts on this or any of our stories, you can leave your comments on the Triple F website, our Facebook page, or on Twitter. We love hearing from you, our listeners, and we want to know your thoughts on our content. As always, please leave us a review on iTunes or other podcatchers so that we can build our listenership and keep the stories flowing. Please remember that Farfetched Fables operates under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License which means you can download the content and share it all you like, but don't change it or sell it. And be sure to give credit where that credit is due. All other copyright remains that of the authors. Violators will draw the ire of the Bruja. That's all from me. Have a great week, everyone. Bye now. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.